Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, Resolve, based out of our study on the book of Daniel. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Diocletian was a Roman emperor um, who came to power in the year 284 AD, and it said that the Christians were expectant, they were hopeful when Diocletian came to power because um, there was rumors that Diocletian's wife and daughter were Christians, and the Christians had been persecuted for years already, so they were hoping they were going to get a little bit of ease when he came to power. And things were peaceful for a time, but this history says there was just this ramping up of persecution that came under Diocletian. Maybe one of the most important little ages of church uh, history to, to know about. He, Diocletian, was one of these who believed that the, the old Roman religion is what united the empire. And the empire was weakening because they weren't united under the Roman gods. And so he started to declare, um, started to legislate um, that, that, that all people had to worship the Roman god. So first he ordered that all copies of the Bible, all copies of scripture had to be burned, that the churches would be destroyed and their property confiscated, and Christianity was forbidden in the Roman Empire. Then he ordered that anyone who resisted would essentially be deprived of some rights. If they were in public office, they would lose their office. And then he ordered the arrest of all Christian clergy, so pastors, bishops, anyone who served in ministry, they were all arrested. The problem with that was that the prisons were filling up with pastors and bishops, and they were having to let out criminals because they were filled with Christians. So then he orders that the Christians can be released from prison. They just need to sacrifice to Roman gods. And the prison guards can use any means necessary to encourage pastors and bishops to sacrifice to Roman gods. Gods And so Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know, that Christian classic, tells of a man named St. Victor Maurus, um, who was a Christian for most of his life. He served as a Roman soldier, and history says that he was kind of known for his bravery. For He was from this noble family, was like a very solid Roman uh, citizen. Um, but when Diocletian's persecution began to heat up... Um, he started to do things like he would stay up late in the night um, and all night long he would go and visit the sick and he would visit the poor and he would go visit the widows and pray for them because he didn't want to be seen during the day. And so they, they catch up with him eventually and they, they realize what's going on. Um, and this man that was somewhat of a patriot and a hero, um, now the government orders that he's drugged through the streets and in Fox's Book of Martyrs words, he was treated with all manners of cruelties by the people of his community. So the community watched him be drugged through the streets. This war hero drugged through. They shouted at him, threw things at him. They called him a traitor. They said that he was a traitor against Rome because he wouldn't serve the Roman gods. And he said he was not a traitor and had been faithful. And he would gladly obey any law that the Roman government passed as long, in his words, as it was lawful. So they drug him through the streets. He was old at this point. Some say he was sick. And he still refused to worship the gods. And so after his refusal, they stretched him out on the racks. The history says that he prayed for patience. He still refuses to recant, and they take him to a cell in a dungeon, 
And there, this tired, beaten, old, sick man finds enough energy to preach the gospel to his three jailers. They receive Jesus, and then they're murdered for it. But when you live on mission, you live on mission, man, and he's going to preach even in his cell. They put him on the racks again, and they beat him again, and then the emperor the emperor was present, he, and he brings in a small altar and an idol, and he um, encourages Victor to offer incense on the idol. And church history says that Victor stood up and kicked the thing over pow, in front of the emperor. Um, problem with that is the emperor cut his foot off, and then they put him in a they put him in a mill and crushed his bones, murdered him. That's not funny. You're not supposed to laugh at that part. But I like his style. I like it. Some scholars believe that Nebuchadnezzar is in a similar predicament. There are archaeologists have found a, a, a tablet that describes an amount of years in the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign where um, there was political turmoil and there was an attempt to overthrow him. And, and the tablet says that Nebuchadnezzar even had to fight out of a courtyard with his own sword, that the, that the riots had gotten that bad. So a lot of biblical scholars think that when we come to Daniel chapter 3, and what we're coming to is Nebuchadnezzar building this huge statue and saying, everyone's going to bow to the statue. A lot of scholars think that this is actually done in this period of turmoil, and Nebuchadnezzar's doing the same thing. He's basically saying, we're, we're going to unite um, Babylon through religion. We're going to use religion to form uniformity. And at the risk of over-contextualizing, it seems to me to be a strategy of the enemy to unite people through false worship, and then to inspire the majority to persecute those who resist. And our day might not be much different than that. I think it's buried deep within the heart of every believer to pray for revival. I think every believer prays for their nation, that God would pour his spirit out on their nation in a new way, but we would do well to understand biblical prophecy and church history and what Peter meant when he said that he urged us to live as sojourners and exiles. In Revelations chapter 17, 5, 6, uh, it's not my intention to get too into um, end-time prophecy as we look at Daniel, but it's interesting in 17, 5, 6 of Revelation, it says, On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs. So the end-time prophecy is that this same spirit that led in Babylon persecutes believers in the end time says he's drunk with the blood of the saints and and, and as we continue to labor for a move of God in our community and we cry out God we want you to send revival we want to see hearts born again and people come to really know Jesus we're also aware that there's a spirit of this age we're also aware of persecution being a perfectly biblical theme and when something's a biblical theme like that you should expect that it should be a theme in your life as a Christian and we understand that in the end times speak of a, a singular figure who will be called the Antichrist. But they also speak of the spirit of the Antichrist that, that manifests itself in every age. In 1 John 2.18, John says, Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. But so now many Antichrists have already come. 
culturally we're straying from our roots and as believers we should consider Peter's words, you live as exiles. And I think we bury Martin Luther's famous phrase in our hearts. Remember when Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. When culture says, we will erect our idol and you will bow. And we say, here I stand, I can do no other. And it was Tertullian in the year 197 AD who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And as we read today, I just wanted to remind you that as our culture shifts, persecution may come our way. We may be rejected more and more, but oftentimes revival comes as a consequence of believers standing faithful through trials. So let's read our passage today. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 through 13. The scriptures say that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. That's about 90 feet tall and 10, almost 10 feet wide. The Lincoln Memorial statue is 19 foot tall. And they say if Lincoln stood up, he would be 28 foot tall. So about three times that. It's a strange diameter, though. Like, it's not wide enough for how tall it is. So some scholars think that it was on a mound. Either that or the statue looked kind of like a totem pole. Like, it was very um, grotesque. Like, it didn't look right. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers of justice, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed, You are commanded, O people, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship this golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall and worship shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, and the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people, the nations, and languages, they fell down and they worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree, and every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, and the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. Nebuchadnezzar, the text is so repetitive and it's doing something in the language there when it keeps repeating that all of the satraps and all of the magistrates, um, it's trying to drive points home in the original language. There's some nuances that we don't quite grasp in the English But the text makes it pretty clear that um, there are thousands of people. Remember, Babylon's huge. Thousands of people come to the plain of Dura to see this huge statue that he's built. 90 feet tall is something like nine stories. It's very tall. We we do know from history that like in Egypt, there were at times statues that were 100, 120 feet. So it's absolutely realistic that that Nebuchadnezzar could have built a statue that tall, but it's huge. And it's, it's plated in gold is what scholars say. 
Um, and so thousands of people will come to the plain of Dura and they see this huge statue built up and, and, and then herald, and that's something that Babylonians used a lot, herald come forward and he yells, all of you will bow down when we play music. Um, and thousands of people all bow before this idol, except for these three Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As we look at this text, I want to take a moment just to think through the different parties involved in what's happening here. And I want to just draw a couple conclusions. I won't be too long for you, but draw a couple conclusions that I hope will help us in the coming days. First, somebody say first. I want to talk about Nebuchadnezzar and how is it that he has just had an experience with the God of Israel, the only God that can interpret his dream in Daniel chapter 2, and now he finds himself opposing the very God that he just praised. He says in Daniel 2.47, he says this, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So just in his last chapter, he was praising the Lord as God of gods and Lord of kings. And in this chapter, he finds himself opposing him. First, I think he handled his encounter with God irreverently. I think in the moment he was shook with fear and awe. In the moment of emotion, he declares Daniel chief prefect. He pronounces the greatness of the God of Israel. But at some point, this encounter began to fade into distant memory. He did not keep the testimony of his encounter with God's presence. And he didn't really bow. And when God's presence meets with you, you ought to bow. When God's presence steps into the room, when you walk into worship and you sense the God of heaven is in the room, you ought to let that seep into your heart and you ought to really bow before him. When God's presence encounters you, you've got to keep that testimony. And your heart ought to ask, what are you saying, God? What are you trying to do in me? You be careful to steward your encounter as well, to remind yourself of the holiness of God and to not treat holy moments as casual. That's one of the greatest risks of coming to a spirit-filled church is you'll begin to, to take, take, take granted, take for granted the presence of God. It'll be common and usual and you'll come in and get chill bumps and walk out as if nothing happened, as if the God of Israel, the God of all the universe didn't just meet with you, man. And as a nation, it seems we forgot our encounters with God. We have not remembered the revivals of old. We don't teach American history well at all. God has moved in this land for centuries and we act as if nothing has happened. Our entire national identity is shifting and being fought over daily because we have not remembered. And we need to teach our kids history. We need to teach our kids American history, what actually happened. We need to talk about the first great awakening. We need to talk about the second great awakening. We need to talk about the prayers that our forefathers prayed, asking God to pour his spirit out on this land. We are living in the product of forgetting the testimony. Just like Israel, we've forgotten what God has done in our midst. We haven't taught our kids the stories. We haven't talked about the doctrines that our forefathers believed. And we find ourselves today in a mess. We find ourselves today fighting over our national identity. 
And now Nebuchadnezzar, he's distracted with his own affairs. He's concerned with his own control. His dynasty, his legacy is at risk because there are people rising up against him. And he acts out of fear and he scrambles to gain control. He's so focused on himself that he's forgotten the God of his previous chapter. And he makes one bad move after another. First, he usurps the authority of God. That he just proclaimed as sovereign. And second, listen to me for a moment. He allows himself to be manipulated by the very people he refused to be manipulated by in the last chapter. In Daniel chapter 2, remember verse 9, he says to the Chaldeans, You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words for me until the times change. And he's saying to the Chaldeans, You tell me my dream, I'm going to murder you because you manipulate. You're constant manipulators. But now in his anxiety and fear, he lets his guard down. And now he's being manipulated by the same people who yesterday he said, you ain't going to tell me what to do. And it was the young Jewish boys that he found to be consistent in the last chapter. It was the young Jewish boys who had integrity. But now because he's walking in fear and anxiety and frustration, there's a target on his back to be manipulated. Same people he knew were liars yesterday now give him counsel. And you be careful in your anxiety. You be careful when you're fearful. You don't let people cause your blood to boil. You remember that wisdom is in the multitude of counsels. And when you find yourself in a season where things feel a little shaky, you stop and you breathe for a moment. And you ask for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you might find yourself opposing the God who you just confessed in your previous chapter. Second, there's a subtle theme in this text that we don't talk about much, but that theme is the reaction of the crowd. They all mindlessly bow at the king, at the command of the king. Has no one thought through the fact that Nebuchadnezzar just built this thing? There has to be someone other than the Jews who finds this to be inconsistent. Surely someone has thought through that these gods are made with human hands. Calvin found this part of the story most horrifying. He said that this theme continues to play itself out in all generations, that people worship whatever is commanded. People worship whatever is culturally relevant in that moment. I want you to listen to me carefully this morning. God is the God of truth, and he gave you a brain and the ability to reason. He is the God of logical consistency, and he gave you cognitive faculties to help you realize when something is dumb. Good God. And I understand that our nation is bent on embracing this demonic strategy to murder the innocent, but it doesn't make it any less evil. Our culture can say abortion is okay, but it doesn't make it any less evil. And I don't, I don't want to be controversial this morning, but I feel like I need to say some things. So you let me talk. You don't have a choice because I have the microphone. passed in New York in the last weeks is gut-wrenching and it's absolutely immoral and it's absolutely illogical. The governor of Virginia says on on, on news that they will revive a born baby if the mother wishes because the mother should not be told what to do with her body. The baby is clearly a separate body, clearly a distinct individual. 
created in the image of God. And our culture wants to make all sexuality acceptable. That doesn't make it biblical or consistent with what God has revealed. And I have compassion. I have real serious compassion for people who struggle with gender identity. I feel no need to be rude. I feel no need to throw stones or be arrogant or to degrade the value of anyone. No need at all. But biology is biology and I'm not going to let my kids be taught. They get to pick their gender. God gave you a brain to think these things through. And, and, and I'm growing in patience. And every day God's teaching me to grow in kindness. And I want to walk in compassion and conversation with those who differ with me. But I do not have to abandon my brain to love people. You don't. You don't. That's, that's not consistent at all. You do not have to abandon your, your brain to work with people. And so as we look at this passage today, as the crowds just bow with mindless submission, I want to remind you of the words of your mama when she said, just because everyone is doing it don't mean it's right. And I, I know as Arminians, we don't like to talk about John Calvin much, but I want John Calvin's words to haunt you when he wrote about this passage. And, he, and John Calvin's words was, does anyone think before they bow? Teach your kids to reason, to consider, to read and allow the word of God to rise as authoritative, even when it's not popular opinion of the day. I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego may have chuckled a little nervously and thought to themselves, these are some mindless people. And then the, the next party is these Chaldeans whose hatred has caused them to use this opportunity to manip- manipulate Nebuchadnezzar to murder the Jews. It's clear that there were from the text that there were thousands of people at this dedication. And it's clear that Nebuchadnezzar didn't expect anyone to actually stand up. It's also clear that Nebuchadnezzar didn't see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up. And they were probably pretty relieved that he didn't see them. But the Chaldeans despised these Jewish boys. First, when they met these young Jewish guys, they didn't eat what they ate. They don't worship what they worship. They're distinctly different from the rest. They refuse to sit with us, joke with us, to uh, to party with us. And second, the scripture tells us in Daniel chapter 1 that God gifted these young Jewish boys and calls them to excel far beyond all the Chaldeans. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar says that he found the, the Jewish boys to be ten times better than all the magicians, enchanters, and the Chaldeans. So they despised the young Jewish men because of the favor and blessing of God in their lives. They were embarrassed in chapter 2 when they couldn't produce the dream. But it seems that they've forgotten that they have breath in their lungs today because the God of Israel came for, came through for the Jews. They're eaten up with envy, fueled with hatred. They totally see red, but good God, you're breathing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have not belittled them, maybe embarrassed their gods, but haven't belittled them, haven't disrespected them. Yet they move towards murder. Watch their envy cause them to manipulate their king to murder the people who just prayed them through their last trial. When God anoints someone else, blesses someone else, you better learn to rejoice. You learn to celebrate the victory of others. 
practice thankfulness. I felt just to be vulnerable. I felt some weird things rise up in my heart and my flesh the last couple of weeks where envy kind of started to rise. And I felt the Lord remind me that when the believer begins to envy other people's success, the believer has only been concerned with building their own kingdom. They are not concerned with the kingdom of the king. And these Chaldeans, they're envious, but they're going to use Nebuchadnezzar to manipulate him in order to kill the Jews. But they're not really concerned with Nebuchadnezzar's well-being. They're concerned with their own. And you find yourself manipulating, hating, seeing red when you allow envy to, to settle in your heart. You learn to be thankful for everything God's doing in your life. And you learn to celebrate the victory of others. Otherwise, you find yourself opposing the person that just prayed you through. And last, we see the text, the prominent theme that we'll explore next week. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they just lock their knees. They just grit their teeth, and they stand. All eyes, thousands of people now on them. They're being brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and they are caught up in the fear and the anxiety, the frustration of Nebuchadnezzar. They're caught up in the envy and the hatred and the manipulation of the Chaldeans, but they have neither fear, anxiety, nor have they envy or manipulation. All of the crosshairs are on their backs, but they're the ones who are actually innocent and consistent. And sometimes in the world, you find yourself in that position where you've done absolutely nothing to deserve the stones that are being thrown at you. This really doesn't have anything to do with them. They find themselves in a mess, not of their own making. They're the only party in the entire scene who's held themselves with integrity. And they do the only thing you can do when you're consistent. They just refuse to bow. And I'm sorry to rant this morning. But again, it's incredible that our culture has decided that tolerance is now her chief value, her chief cornerstone. Tolerance for everyone who will bow. Tolerance for everyone but the Christians. Tolerance for everyone except anyone who opposes their agenda. And Jesus says in Matthew 4, 6, Matthew 5, 46, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. It's the exact posture of our society today. They say, we love everyone who loves us. We're tolerant of everyone who embraces our ideology, but that's not what Jesus taught us. And don't let anyone convince you that it is. You're called to love all people and to live consistently and in truth. So how do we treat our neighbor who lives a homosexual lifestyle with honor, with dignity? You pray when they're sick. You listen when they need to talk. You cry with them when they lose a loved one. You invite them to church. And if you get the chance, God opens the door to share Jesus. You share Jesus. And if they ask you what you believe about sexuality, you share what the scriptures say about sexuality. Loving doesn't mean agreeing. And loving our Muslim neighbors doesn't mean that we deny what the scriptures teach. Our culture has shamed us for being consistent and labeled us as hate-filled for believing the Bible. And it's not true. It's just really not true. She shames us because we refuse to bow. Listen to me. My knee only bows to Jesus. 
And I believe what I believe about abortion, not because I have anything, anything against women right, women's rights. It's not true at all. I believe what I believe about abortion because what the scripture says about the dignity of human life and value. And I believe what I believe about sexuality, not because I hate anyone in the LGBT community. I believe what I believe about sexuality because of what Jesus says in Matthew 19, that marriage is between a man and a woman. When they leave their father and mother, cling to one another and become one flesh. Not because I hate anyone in the LGBT community, community, but because my knee only bows to Jesus and what Jesus says. I want you just to hear my tone of voice. I'm not a person of hatred. I have no hatred, man. We're not people of manipulation. We're not people who operate out of fear and anxiety. We're just people who only bow our knees to Jesus. We're just people who bow to, to the word of God. And, and, and you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with what God has revealed. And my knees will not bow to the agenda of our society. It just won't. I'm not throwing stones. I'm not a person of hatred. I have, I will, I'm doing everything I can not to operate out of arrogance or not to belittle anybody. God forbid. But I'm not bowing. I'm just not. Not bowing. So they're tangled up in all these mixed motives, manipulation. They're the target of all animosity. It really is fascinating to consider the fact that thousands of people filled with hatred and envy, this huge crowd, and there's just three Jewish guys who really don't know what's going on. They just showed up because they got told to show up. And all of a sudden, all the anger and frustration is aimed at them. They're the only people that have targets on their back. This morning I felt, I, I, I felt like God was saying to me that I needed to remind you that you find courage. You have courage and you teach your kids courage. You, you learn to have grace and compassion in your tone of voice, but you get yourself a backbone of steel and you bow your knee when Jesus tells you to bow your knee. As our culture slips away from, uh, from its history and they sling stones our way. You don't sling stones back. You just stand. You just don't quit. You don't shake your fist at God and say, what have we done to deserve this? You might find yourself with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and you didn't do nothing. Might not have anything to do with you. Jesus says, they're going to hate you because they hate me. And when Israel rejected Samuel, God says to Samuel, they don't reject you. They reject me. In conclusion, in the year 155 AD, they came for Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna. History says he was the last remaining disciple of the apostle John. And they urged Polycarp to save himself. They say, what harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord and offering incense? What harm is there, Polycarp, in bowing your knee and offering incense? He continued to refuse. They continued to press him. And his famous words were this, 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me today? Here in 155 AD, they say to Polycarp, what harm is there in bowing your knee? Just offer incense. Just embrace our ideology and everything will be okay. Diocletians say the same thing to Victor. And our culture is slowly beginning to say the same thing to us. What harm is there? Just bow your knee. Just embrace our ideology. Just embrace our truth. And everything will be all right. Otherwise, we'll sling stones your way. 
86 years I've been his servant. He's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? It's not about hatred. Don't buy that. It's not about me having animosity. It's not about bigotry. At the end of the day, it's, it's Jesus has been constantly faithful to me. He has done me no wrong. I cannot bow my knee to any other. And I want to be faithful to Jesus in the sun and faithful in what feels like the rain, man. Sometimes these moments of persecution are opportunities to honor him in the face of those who reject him. It's an opportunity to look somebody in the face and say, he's been good to me, man. I just can't. He's been too good to me. I'm praying our culture turns. I'm praying for a third great awakening that God releases his Holy Spirit on our land again. I'm believing for it, man. But in the meantime, our only option is to stand. They just keep standing, keep proclaiming his goodness. We keep leading people into encounters with his presence. And we keep bowing our knees only to Jesus. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. We serve the Lord. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.